Welcome to Conversations from the Leading Edge, a monthly radio show and podcast featuring interviews about extraordinary advances in the area of peace and conflict studies happening at or around Columbia University. Each month, we feature interviews with scientists and thought leaders who are conducting groundbreaking work aimed at managing conflict constructively and sustaining peace both locally and globally. My name is Peter T. Coleman, and I'm coming to you from the studios of WKCR at Columbia University. The show is sponsored by AC4, the Advanced Consortium on Cooperation, Conflict, and Complexity at the Earth Institute at Columbia University. And now for today's show. Hello and welcome to Conversations from the Leading Edge. My name is Meredith Smith and I'm a program manager at the Earth Institute at AC4, a consortium that is focused on peace and conflict and sustainability. And I'm pleased to have two special guests here with me, both who are in high demand here at Columbia and in New York and around the world doing work on um, family and child protection and in the field of public health and policy. Their names are Professor Neil Boothby and Zahira McNatt. Pleasure to have you both here today. Thank you so much. I'm really eager to get an introduction from you guys on this topic of separation of families and refugee families in particular, given the breadth and wealth of work that you both have done. Can you give us some introduction to how you got into this topic in particular? Well, thank you, Meredith. Um, It began for me quite some time ago when I was a doctoral student like Zahira is, and I was at Harvard and I had to write a dissertation and I went to work on the Thai-Cambodia border right after the Khmer Rouge genocide. And there was, you know, tens of thousands of children that had been separated from their families. And as a relief community, we weren't particularly well organized to deal with that. So we struggled with what to do with them. And then that led to, I think, essentially, what is the cornerstone study on the care and protection of unaccompanied children in emergencies that was then later published by Oxford University. And then that led to a, a, a set of guidelines. When I was working with UNHCR, we came up with uh, guidelines on how to uh, respond to these people. And it also then was integrated into to many, many nations, sort of policies in terms of what to do with uh, separated children. So it, we have a long history here. Zahira has become part of our efforts uh, here at Columbia University to work with UNHCR, particularly on the Syrian study. And so this, um, before, sorry, um, passing it over to you, Zahira, the study that mm-hmm. Professor Boothby just mentioned is the one that we're gonna talk about that was in partnership with UNHCR and has just been published recently. So very, eager to hear more about that, but first, we'd love to have more of an introduction from from you, Zahira. Great. Thanks so much, Meredith, and thank you for having us. Um, As Neil mentioned, I'm a doctoral student here at Columbia. I'm starting my third year in Mailman School of Public Health in the program on forced migration and health, and so I've had the opportunity in partnership with Neil to look at a whole host of research questions related to um, Syrian refugees and the Syrian refugee experience, and thinking about how we can um, improve policymaking and in regards to this community, but also other refugee populations. And so stepping into the work on separation, um, for me, has been an interesting extension beyond health and thinking about more generally the wellness of refugees and those seeking asylum and all the different aspects of their lives that influence their ability to be well during this experience. And for this report in particular that um, is focused on Syrian refugees in Jordan, 
Could you speak a bit to you know why Jordan? Were there particular populations there that you were focused on that is relevant within the Syrian refugee population? And um, also maybe just some context for our listeners about why separation is happening. Yeah. So I'll start, and Zahira can, can, can come in in just a minute. But, you know, Syrians are a significant percentage of the sort of unprecedented 68 million uh, people in the world that don't have homes. So there's, I think it's about one out of every 113 people are, is either a refugee, an asylum seeker, or is displaced within her own country, internally displaced. Um, and they in particular face, I think, in today's world where these numbers have begun to sort of shrink the humanitarian and human rights space, not only in this country, as we have become painfully aware of in, in, in recent months, but also in Europe and some of the most progressive, you know, Scandinavian countries in, in which they're sort of saying we, 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 can't, we can't absorb anymore. Um, so they're particularly affected by these dynamics. If we look at root causes, we often talk about human rights abuses, uh, and whatnot, which is which is definitely the case. If you look at what refugees go to, Syrians and others getting out of their country and into asylum countries, uh, there's there's massive human rights abuse and, and human suffering. But beneath that, and what's driving that, really is the growing uh, economic inequality in the world, and it's widening and it's pushing people out of their out of their homelands and countries because there isn't opportunities. So we have situations, whether it's in Asia, Africa, or frankly, you know, the growing inequality in this country, Latin America, uh, where people are being restructured out of their land, uh, have to move to urban areas where they're exposed to violence and don't have skill sets that for, uh, fit the urban context. And then they come to this country, for example, saying it's La Valencia, the violence, the violence. But if you go back a bit in time, 70% of the people in Honduras, for example, were, were on very fertile lands, and they've now lost their land to the agribusiness. Or if you look at Miramar, for example, where the Rohingya have gone into Bangladesh in huge, huge numbers, and, and again, people are using words like genocide and uh, uh, human rights abuse and whatnot, and that's absolutely true, semicolon. You know, the Chinese just invested $5 billion in what was once the Rohingya land to build ports, and the, and the government wants to build an economic enterprise zone. And there's a law in, in Miramar that if you burn down property, the military owns it. So behind this massive displacement is lack of opportunity, inequality, and kind of how the global economy is restructuring people out of livelihoods. Great. Thanks for that um, background, Neil. You know, specifically, um, I think one of the we're working on Syrian refugees at this moment in time, but I think we recognize um, that there are refugees from a whole host of, of countries and that those experiences have some shared similarities. Um, the top five countries at this point, I think, are um, Syria, Afghanistan, South Sudan, Somalia, um, and Myanmar. And so we recognize that family separation may be happening in all of those different contexts, and I think they require they each require some special attention and analysis to understand how to respond to them. This particular piece of work, however, um, came at a request um, from UNHCR, from their Middle East and North Africa regional office. And so that's sort of how we entered into exploring this particular refugee experience and thinking about how to conduct a study that would help to identify areas for advocacy, areas for policy improvement, and otherwise. Um, 
And I think this research question specifically is really important for a variety of reasons. So the question we we took on by taking on this project was what is the impact of family separation on Syrian refugees who live in Jordan or who have remained in Jordan, but they have family members somewhere else in the world, mostly in this case Europe and in the Gulf countries. There are a variety of reasons why this is useful and important to study, and one is that we see families in the family unit as protective. And so when any of us in our own personal experiences are going through crisis, having family present allows us a lot of support that is economic, that is social, that's spiritual, and all sorts of other things. And so now we're looking at people who are um, who are living as refugees, who have um, fled all sorts of conflict and violence. And so, of course, we want them to be in what we think is the most protective unit, and we want them to be with their families during that experience. And so paying attention and understanding why they're not and how to reduce separation and how to reunify, I think is going to be really important as we move forward in tackling um, the questions of forced migration. And then the second I think Neil um, spoke about really is that family unity is under attack for a variety of reasons. And so again, being able to dig in, understand what's happening, and looking for areas of improvement in policy and implementation. Thank you for this big picture perspective and also the reference points for seeing where this report fits in. And I want to hear some about how you conducted your research. A couple things in the report, you, um, you know, even the way that you left the definition of family open, for example, um, I think would are informative and help to understand some of the complexity around this issue of family unity and or separation. Mm -hmm. So if you could tell us about how you conducted the research, maybe what things you found that were unexpected. Sure, great. So, you know, I think, um, we did two things before taking on sort of a large set of qualitative interviews with Syrian refugee families. And we did this in, in partnership with the Columbia Global Center in Amman, with UNHCR. Um, we had master's students from the School of Public Health, Jordanian researchers who also partnered with us to do data collection. And, and together, we all wanted to make sure we understood the context before we started meeting with families. And so the two things we did, one was just a, a little bit of a demographic analysis of Syrian refugees in Jordan and who's separated and where are their family members. Um, if they know where they are, where are they? And then the second was trying to understand um, sort of the top 10 countries who are who have accepted Syrian refugees and what their policies were around reunification or around um, how they deal with family separation. So we did that kind of information gathering just to understand context. The breadth of what's sort of in the in the report is really the result of interviewing 85 Syrian refugee families and getting to understand their own perspective and their own experience. Um, and as you can see, the report and the study itself are very qualitative in nature, and we thought that that was important to understand nuance and dynamics, the way different aspects of people's lives are sort of interconnected, and so being separated is connected to not having enough money to send, you know, to uh, provide your kids with the supplies and to go to school. Um, being separated is part of why um, people had their sons in the labor force instead of in school, and so we. Being able to interview people um, allowed us the, to understand sort of the breadth and depth of their experience. And I think in this professional space, we do a lot of quantitative work. Um, 
but we don't do as much qualitative work that allows us to bring the voices of the most affected um, to, you know, hopefully these kinds of reports or to the halls where decisions are being made. Um, so I think that that, you know, the, the 85 families that we got to speak with were able to share with us over an hour or so um, their experience with family separation and be able to, we were able to reflect their words in the report. So not just our own understanding, but their own language and description of the kinds of experiences that they've had trying to access reunification and facing barriers in that process. And in the report you use highlight the findings and these themes that emerge from those um, interviews and share some really powerful testimonials. And could you share one of the, the stories to give a glimpse to our um, listeners about kind of how, you know, you've, you've mentioned a lot of things about how the separation has affected them and just maybe some of the one that struck a common theme of one of the four themes that could help to illuminate uh, some of the key takeaways. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, and you're right, there's so many, even what's in the report is probably not as much as we were able to capture and we're hoping to write other things that highlight some of the other themes and some of the other voices. Um, I thought maybe to highlight two excerpts and a little bit around the experience of, of these women. Um, the first was essentially from a woman who was the sole head of household, and her husband um, was in a, already in a European country, and she and her family, uh, she and her children were still in Jordan. Um, and the second is uh, from a wife, but husband and wife were together in Jordan, but one of their teenage sons was in Europe. And again, they're both trying to find ways to, both of those families trying to find ways to reunify. Um, and so maybe I can share some excerpts from Great. those conversations. Um, the first one I wanted to share um, is from the young woman who was a head of household in, in Jordan. And she said to us, um, had my husband gotten three years of residency, um, we would have been able to go. Now he needs to spend this year, and when the year ends, he must renew it and then get three years residency so we can go um, to this location. My son will then be above 18, and so he will not be able to join us, and I will not leave him in Jordan. This is an example we think of, um, you know, families trying to make really difficult decisions about who to remain with, which really shouldn't have to happen as a result of this kind of forced migration. So in this, in this case, they would like to reunify with the husband who lives in Germany. Um, but are unable to do so because of the change in reunification policies and procedures. And more importantly, um, as, as a spouse, she can make her way to Germany, but at this point would then have to leave her son behind because he will age out of the system or age out of the possibility for reunification. So this is an example, I think, of the kind of policies um, that are challenging and that allude to, as you started with, um, the discussion about who is family. and so. When you're, once you're 18, are you no longer a family? Are you no longer significant? Um, and we have to think about that both uh, in this context but in many refugee contexts. The other quotation I thought I might share, well, my son tried to reunite, but he couldn't get the residency before he turned 18 years old. He had to be a minor in order to apply for family reunification. 
and he could have done so when he was under 18, but they didn't grant him the residency before he turned 18, and so he waited for about a year. So again, this is an example of a young man who's made his way to Germany, independent, alone, um, forced to migrate, looking for a stable place to live and, and pursue his own sort of path, right? Um, and is unable to do so with family members, but believed he would have been able to do so. And so now families in Jordan and families in, and this young man is in Germany and they're unable to reunite. Hmm. Um, these voices that are woven throughout the report, I think really help to um, just get a better sense of how these policies, where they, are affecting you know lives on a daily level so thank you for for sharing those mm -hmm. and um, I encourage our uh, listeners to 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 look at the report it's with the the testimonials that are included in there and other things and I wanted to follow up with a question about you know this for reunification to happen um, you know in such instances is it a policy that's at the national level in Jordan that decides that? Or you know, can you speak to how, um, what is it, what are the barriers that come up between, you know, in those instances that you shared with the parents, with their son or a spouse? Um, yeah, where, where do those policies come from? Great question. So I think there's a, a couple different levels we can explore. Um, so for example, there are policies um, in Germany or Sweden or Hungary or even the US or Canada um, that countries sort of commit to, right, around who can be reunified, who is seen as a family member, how long those processes take, what documents they need, and so on. Um, I think that what we saw in reality is that those policies and procedures change really frequently, and so it's hard for people to even know, like, what's the current process for applying to reunify. Um, we also saw that they were really opaque, so no transparency in, in what's the policy and what's the procedure and how do I engage in that process. Or even if my application is in and I have submitted all the right documentation, um, how do I get an update on what's happening? Or how do I understand why I've been denied or, um, or even why it's been accepted? So a really um, a, a lack of transparency in, in understanding how the policies and procedures are applied. Um, but essentially, they're, they're created in the countries that could potentially be hosting. Um, and at a, I think at a grander level, and maybe Neil can speak to this, those, those policies and procedures at the national level are really coming from this larger global commitment that we've made um, decades ago around uh, what it means to be a refugee, what rights you have, and family unity being an important piece of that. Yeah, what I'll add to uh, what Zahira just said is that um, there, 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 is, uh, there are conventions and there are definitions uh, that most countries in the world have agreed to. Uh, depending on the political climate, those either get interpreted broadly or narrowly. And in, in the broadest sense, if we go way back to the 1950s, an entire group of people, the Hungarians, were given sort of refugee status you know, in, in, in mass. Everyone got it, and they, they didn't have to do any individual uh, assessments to determine whether or not they were refugees and or could be reunited across borders. 
or we've seen in the you know in the aftermath of the of the Haitian earthquake, for example, a different kind of uh, crisis where, on a humanitarian status basis, Haitians were allowed in this country and families could reunite because the space, the political space, so to speak, was broad. Today, what we're seeing is the narrowing of that space and the narrowing of the interpretation and the the obstacles being put up, you know, uh, to to uh, keep people from coming. Uh, into asylum context, but then also letting people, you know, reunite. So a lot of it will be determined by the political, public attitudes and and whatnot. And we're seeing a shrinking of uh, human rights and humanitarian space today. And are there also um, are you seeing any effective ways for upholding those conventions when they're being challenged? Mm. Um, it's it's perhaps a little pessimistic uh, at this point, but I, I don't see a lot of um, creative space if you view that space from you know sort of a human rights perspective. Um, and 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 I think what we saw in the Syrian context and what we can extrapolate out that we're seeing on our own borders and shores today with, with, with the um, separation of the, the, you know, the government forcing families apart. So one set won't allow them to get together. Another set is actually dividing wedges between these critical relationships. Is that we're, we're, in, a, we're in a space now. We're in an attitudinal political economic space in which um, we seem to be sort of working our way through cement. I mean, we're clogging our way through this, this space. And, and I haven't seen anything that makes me terribly optimistic. If we look at Europe, for example, essentially what we see is Europe has extended its borders to northern Africa. It's paying Libya funds to stop people at sea from coming to the Mediterranean. You know, for example, and 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 so we're we're in, in at least in my lifetime, sort of unprecedented, nasty space. Mm. That uh, visual of clogging through cement is uh, very powerful, and um, I, I guess I wonder if, just to think through, you know, for that host country, um, are there. What are the, the real consequences and the challenges or, or the, the weight for them when um, separation happens, if there is? You know, I think in your report you, you do show the economic, social, and emotional tolls on the refugees. And if we could look at the other side to think about the, the consequences or the, the burdens on the host country, if there are any real ones, when separation um, happens. Mm-hmm. Great, thanks, Meredith. Um, so I'd like to maybe clarify um, sort of host countries and sort of the language I think that sometimes we use. So a lot of times we're talking about host countries and we mean the, the country you immediately enter when you flee. So in the case of Syrian refugees, that may be Jordan or Lebanon, sort of a nearby nation um, that takes in a lot of people. Um, when speaking about that, that community, that government, um, 
I think that those host communities do experience a lot of pressure. Jordan has more than a million Syrian refugees in their borders. That's not including refugees that they've taken in from various other countries. I think one in four persons in Lebanon is a, is a Syrian refugee. So those countries are experiencing real burden. And it's important to note that in the Syrian crisis, but in other crises, these countries are often low and middle income countries who are already dealing with their own financial and other challenging issues and then taking in sort of millions of additional people. So the burden does exist in that space. I think when we're talking about um, countries that could potentially accept refugees in Europe, the US, Canada, and otherwise, I think that those burdens are um, exaggerated within the media and used, I think, uh, as sort of propaganda in relationship to a lot of other policy making and sort of legislative issues. Mm -hmm. And so I would want to be careful just to talk about the pressure and the burden really is on low and middle income countries that are hosting the largest amount of refugees. Um, However, in both of those settings, whether you're in Jordan or you've made it to Germany, it's really beneficial for those countries to want families intact, right? So do you want um, a young man who's, who feels isolated and who's separated from his parents and his siblings and other people who could support his transition into this new space and this new country and new environment? Or do you want him to be sort of alone you know, and isolated. And I think that um, governments really need to be making more responsible policy decisions that support people um, who make it to your shores. And being part of a family unit isn't just beneficial for you and I or for wh whoever's part of that family, but is beneficial for a society and a community. And so I think um, all parties benefit from people being within their family unit and not being isolated um, or feeling as though they've been forced to be separated. And when this a policy, say if there was a policy that was more um, integrating the right of family unity, um, you know, one thing, going back to what you brought up before about the kind of translating policy into just everyday, like with the paperwork that comes within policy um, mm -hmm. in order to get the rights for, for reunification. Can you just shed a little light onto how does it get translated into the actual living yes, situations? Yes. Yeah. You know, so I'm hoping that this piece of work, but then other writing and, and other sort of advocacy that's happening in relationship to family separation and reunification um, is able to help one, expand the definition of what is a family and what does what does family mean, um, who qualifies in that space. And I recognize that that's sensitive for a whole host of reasons, but for the examples that we gave earlier around young people who are turning 18 or 19, um, it really is sort of arbitrary to decide that they are no longer family members, particularly within cultural contexts where they would have been living home until they got married, mm -hmm. um, where they would have been also for, you know, in some cases, living home for their entire lives because then they take care of elder family members as they get older and are less able to work. And so really thinking about what is family and who gets included in that definition, I think we're, we're going to be need a shift at some point in time. Um, the second, I would say, is that um, there are reunification procedures that already exist in Jordan, in Germany, and in the countries that we're talking about, and we really need to work on forcing them to be um, clearer, to be more transparent, to be less expensive. Um, I think there's a whole host of 
of improvements just to the procedures that already exist that would make it easier for people to reunify. A lot of the barriers around documentation, cost, transportation, all those sorts of things we highlight in the report, and those are, are perhaps easier fixes than the larger uh, global dynamics, but I think just as important. The one thing I'll, I'll, I'll add to that would be um, resilience is really a social construct. I mean, we look at it often in this, in this country as individual attributes and skills and whatnot, and that's, that's a piece of it, but it really is about the people in our lives and how we help each other along, who are the champions in our lives. So from a standpoint of the refugee family, unity is critical to their uh, strength building and their progression and whatnot. But even economically, if we want to look at family unity from an economic perspective, you could pick a, a group that's come to this country, for example, the Vietnamese that came here in the, what was that, the mid-70s and, and whatnot. If you look at how they sort of moved over time, it, they started businesses vis-a-vis -vis their own families. And whether that's shrimping in the Gulf states or whether that's starting a restaurant in Orange County, California, or you know, small businesses and whatnot. They started with the family because they could save costs and work together and whatnot. And, and they progressed, you know, to the, to the point where there's some of the more vital small, uh, vital small businesses in this country. So again, family unity is also linked to economic uh, uh, resilience and progress as well. This question also around translating the, the research into practice. And I'm wondering where the academia kind of increase the impact or you know how that's um, fitting into the the impact that you hope to have with this report in terms of the use of the report um, the goal in some ways is, is is to use it and kind of engage you know in that sort of political discourse uh, in Europe and the EU and whatnot in terms of uh, sharing this to, to, to enable some of the European countries for example to look at the impact and see whether or not through various means. I mean, one can change policies, but one can open up, you know, reunification on humanitarian basis. You don't have to qualify as a refugee as an interim strategy. So the, the hope is, and, and, and what the agreement was, is that UNHCR would use the report to begin these kinds of discourses to see how an 18-year-old could be included, for example, in family reunification. But on the ground. Great. So, you know, it's interesting, I think, I personally really enjoy work um, in the academic space that's partnered with practitioners. And so in this case, as you said, we worked with the UNHCR Middle East North Africa region and their Jordan office, um, also with the Columbia Global Center that's based in Amman. And I think that there is this really important role for academics to play in the humanitarian setting, and that is helping, um, helping sort of understand context um, doing the kinds of research that evaluate the effectiveness of programs. So I think there's a lot of role for academia, and partnership can be difficult because we, we tend to work quite differently. Um, and so I think a lot of times we're learning each other's sort of the culture of the academic institution and the culture of humanitarian response, and so that takes time. There's been some interest in not just understanding family separation in Jordan or in the Middle East, but then understanding 
what's happening to the folks who have made it to Europe and are trying to reunify. So how are they doing socially, economically, um, emotionally, and otherwise? So I think that these kinds of relationships are going to be important if academics are going to be relevant in the humanitarian space and thinking about what do we bring to the table that would be um, useful in improving policy, practice, and otherwise. Mm -hmm. And in terms of what you have seen, do you see models that exist um, elsewhere that could be helpful in Jordan? And perhaps generalizing more broadly, given your work on conflict context, um, generalizing to say what could be done and how we can be doing peace building better? Mm. Well, I, 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 that's a great question. I think in the broadest sense, what what the humanitarian slash development community is wrestling with is the unprecedented numbers of displaced people in the world, but also the, the, the you know the, the reality that the, the vast majority exist in urban spaces. And the humanitarian response model is really built uh, out of somewhat antiquated now sort of famine Africa model, rural and, and whatnot. So many of the health interventions, many of the um, uh, other sector interventions are, are, are based on that. And, and in the urban context, they don't, they don't work. Uh, we're also dealing with, with, with a group of people in the Middle East, for example, that, that um, have different kinds of health challenges. So in Africa, it's more communicable disease. In the Middle East, it's more, it's more uh, you know, the cardiovascular and, and, and cancer, the, the NCD type of challenges mm -hmm. that, that your typical NGO doesn't necessarily have a lot of experience in. So to some extent, I think what we're trying to do is kind of rethink and recreate what does it mean to, to work with urban refugees. Um, I think in terms of the broadest sort of policies and, 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 and initiatives in the world that I think are progressive is, you know, President Obama did sort of bring together uh, uh, governments here in New York and the so-called New York Declaration did commit towards the problem of, of, of global displacement. And, and since then, there's sort of this compact on refugees and the compact on migrants. UNHCR is kind of leading some of the rethink on this compact and, and whatnot, and, and really trying to sort of look at issues of accountability. So Zahira, for example, me mentioned earlier, um, you know, the reality that, that uh, the countries bearing the biggest burden really, you know, in the Middle East, for example, is our Lebanon, Turkey, and, and, um, and, and, and Jordan. Um, so if they're if they're doing X, then what do other countries do? You know, to kind of balance the Y. Is it financial support? Is it other kinds of support? Is it reunification? You know, for example. So that space is being explored, I think, quite progressively. Whether or not people will come back to the commitments made at the New York Declaration, given you know the sort of shifting reality in this country and elsewhere, is is a, is a you know yet to remains to be seen, but, but there is some very progressive thought in terms of so-called burden sharing, if you want to use that phrase. Um, what does coordination mean like? Mm -hmm. How do we work in a complementary way? Uh, and that's positive. Can you speak about how that folds in or supports sustainable peace, and particularly in the context of um, peace processes or, or social inclusion, rather, um, as part of, of peace process in a conflict-afflicted mm -hmm. context? 
Well, <clears throat> I'll start briefly. I mean, I think at minimum there's two ends that we have to look at. One is the root causes, so the, the, the uh, economic inequity and the way that, that uh, rural people and urban people are being restructured out of their livelihoods and their property and, and, and the, you know, the root causes of this. There is not going to be uh, sustainable development, sustainable peace. There's going to be continued unrest. I mean, if we had to predict, things are probably going to get worse before they get better. So social justice has to be the lens in which we look at these issues and start to close the gap between the you know the the, the five percent that have more than they need and the you know the eighty five ninety percent that can't afford the mosquito nets to keep their kids alive, for example. Uh, that's just social justice has to be the lens we look at. And then in terms of the people that are displaced, we need to start looking at uh, displaced people as sort of the assets, like what do they bring to the table? And there's many examples of where refugees and displaced people have contributed mightily to the economies of country. And we can think of Germany when, you know, the east-west, the Berlin Wall went down and, and people were very, very concerned about, you know, the absorption of, you know, East Germans into West German economy, et cetera, et cetera. And that's worked out pretty well. I mean, that's, that's kind of a glowing example of how it can create synergies. And so things like, you know, in Jordan, talking about interpri economic enterprise zones mm -hmm. and, and integrating refugees into, into various sectors and using them as, uh, seeing them as assets to progress economically and socially, we need to think a lot more like that. And that, that's a lot about people, Jordanians in this case, and Syrians getting to know each other. It's about social inclusion. It's about teaching this in school, the role that you know, teachers can play in terms of the inclusion issue, the way that communities can come together and, and form neighborhoods that are different but safe and secure. All of that is about uh, peace building, I think. What are your next projects that you're working on? Well, one of the things that I'm actually quite excited about, and, and it's, it's, it's partially why I kind of adore Columbia University and our president, uh, who's very uh, progressive in this space, is that we're starting essentially in our Amman Center, a what we're calling sort of the Urban Displacement Solutions Alliance, where we're going to actually have a group of graduate students and researchers and others based in Amman to work in real time with operational partners, both at policy levels, but also community levels, to see whether or not we can kind of co-create uh, better responses and solutions to these issues. So um, I, again, would commend President Bollinger for his forward thinking and whatnot. Um, so that's my little universe. What, what, what can we do through the university? Yes, and I'll be in that universe. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. So I think, you know, um, we're excited to do the kinds of work that um, that currently are are relevant in the humanitarian space and relevant in the global health and development space, and so this kind of these kinds of research questions that come from the field, I think we're most inspired by, and so the Solutions Alliance will give us this opportunity to respond to um, international and local NGOs as well as host country governments as they describe the kinds of challenges they're facing. Those are things that we can research and help to um, create new policy or procedures around. And so I think highlighting again this opportunity to to partner with the folks who are humanitarian responders and to partner with those who are most affected. And um, I'm excited to take on that kind of work uh, moving forward. In terms of the impact of separation on refugee families and thinking about this this report in particular and the topic, if people here in New York or at Columbia, you know, are um, wanting to support and 
or get involved in some way? Do you know of any organizations that are helping to advocate for better policies that you would suggest? Sure. You know, I think that, um, so there are international NGOs that we're probably more familiar with. Um, that includes, like, the Norwegian Refugee Council, the Danish Refugee Council, um, the International Rescue Committee, um, MSF or Doctors Without Borders, all those groups are playing a key role within Jordan in trying to both respond, but then also advocating with um, Jordan's government and advocating globally around um, around sort of supporting refugees and family reunification and other aspects of their lives. I think within Jordan, there are also local NGOs that become um, sort of, they're just lesser known, right? And um, we have had a chance to meet with um, members of the Jordan River Foundation who do work um, with Syrian refugees as well as with um, local Jordanian populations who are, have low income. Um, an organization called Collateral Repair, which does a lot of work with refugees, not just Syrian refugees, but all refugees that are within Jordan. Um, and they do a lot of work around social inclusion, so trying to bring um, Jordanian young people together with Syrian young people for educational experiences, for social experiences. Um, there's also SAMS, the Syrian American Medical Society, which I think has spent some time on campus mm -hmm. here. So there are a lot of organizations that I think don't get as much attention who we could probably be able to support or, uh, or support their advocacy a bit more. Which seems very important and needed right now. So thank you so much. Yes. This is such um, important and informative information that you all have shared. And I really appreciate you joining me on the show here at WKCR at Columbia and um, sharing the report and the findings from your research. And I'm glad it's available online. I encourage everyone to take a look at it and also um, learn more about this topic and think critically about the policies that we have in place and what can be done to improve them. Thank you both so much. Thank you, Meredith. Thank you. The music for this show was written and composed by Kevin Johnston and is titled Kingdom Stowaway. <laughs>